Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAD. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detail today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. architect, any professional service person or firm is about a human relationship. And the more you can bring that human relationship to the forefront in a potential client phase, the more likely you are to win the business, the more likely you are to have a happy client, the more likely you are that that client will refer more people to you. Welcome back to Context and Clarity. This is the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host Katie Kangas and I, and our live audiences that join us from all across the internet, we all have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. It's been quite a fall season so far, and if you've enjoyed our conversations that have ranged from mentorship to humor to grade school to mindsets, you're going to love this one with David Meerman Scott about his book, Fanocracy. Now, this was a bucket list conversation for me, because as soon as I read the book that David wrote with his daughter, Reiko, I knew that architects needed to understand how they could turn their clients into fans. Does that sound strange to you? Does it sound impossible? Well, you definitely need to hear what David Meerman Scott says about architecture, fans, and the client experience. Hey, welcome back to Context and Clarity. This is where we spend an hour every week talking to special guests about the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. So we've got a great guest in the green room today. And as always, I'm joined by Katie Kangas. Welcome, Katie. Good to be here. Excited to see David. I am too. Glad that you're here with me. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. This is one of those sort of bucket list conversations for me because as I'll introduce our guest here in a minute, they wrote a book that I think is really, really important. Could be have great applications for our community here. So I'm looking forward to this one. Well, we're going to jump into this then and we'll remember whatever it is that I forgot at somewhere along the line. But until that point... Let me just tell you that our guest today is a marketing strategist and an author. He has at least a dozen books at this point. 
But he and his daughter, Reiko, wrote a book called Fanocracy that I think is one of the most important reads an architect could undertake in 2023, headed into 2024. I think so because when it comes to what you share and how you share it, maybe you think you have a secret sauce. Maybe we'll talk about that today. And it also goes to how you treat your clients, the client experience. So I'm looking forward to this conversation with our guest today, David Meerman Scott. Welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Hey, Jeff, and hey, Katie, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it, too. <laughs> I always look in my calendar what's coming up over the next week. Oh, that's going to be a fun discussion. So here we are, ready for a fun discussion. Here we are, yeah. We talked a little bit before we went live, obviously, about our community here, where all of these small business owners, these small firm architects are coming from, and You've got some experience with architects in the past. Yep. And, you know, just kind of going back to this idea of fanocracy, obviously we'll dig into this, but sure. I think there are a lot of architects that think fanocracy, you know, that on the front cover it says turning fans into customers or they call them clients, clients into fans. Can I actually have fans? What does that mean? How does that work? So where does all of this start? 100% every single person tuning in can have fans. You probably already do, but the question is, are you cultivating those fans? Are you allowing those fans to engage, allowing those fans to be able to go out and help you recruit new clients? All of the things that fans can do. But yeah, there's no question about it. My daughter, Reiko, and I, I'd say about a decade ago, Reiko and I started to have these long discussions, like when I'd be driving her somewhere or over dinner or whatever, about fandom. And I'm a massive fan of a number of things. I'm a massive fan of surfing. I have a surfboard over my shoulder here, which I actually made, and we can talk about that later because it's, although not an architect, it's another form of design, which is super cool. I'm a fan of the Grateful Dead. I've seen them 98 times. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fan of long-distance hiking. I also happen to be a fan of mid-century modern homes, and I own one. So I have these deep fandoms. And my daughter, Reiko, also has fandoms. She loves K-pop, Korean pop music. In fact, recently, she's completed the very first graphic novel authorized by a K-pop band. It's coming out from Simon & Schuster in January. And the band is called NCT 127, she wrote about. So she's huge into K-pop. She's huge into Harry Potter. And she also happens to be an emergency room doctor. <laughs> so I don't know how those compute, but they do. And here's the thing that's interesting is as we were thinking about this idea of fandom, we kept coming back to a couple of things. Number one, so many organizations are just in your face, buy my product, buy my service, become a client. AI is out there now. And AI is something that you can use to sort of create stuff without actually having to think. It just creates stuff. So there's all sorts of stuff that goes on in the world because of AI. And then we've got polarization. I know we're streaming out onto Facebook. I happen to think the Facebook AI algorithm is the most destructive technology ever invented because it takes people and puts them into polarized categories so that somebody can say, I don't believe that the election actually was won by who it was won by. I don't believe that this particular medical technique works because they're into a group of people that are just only the people that they know who believe the same things. Anyway, that's a discussion for another day. But our point was on one hand, you've got all this destruction going out there. On one hand, you've got marketing techniques that don't work. Yet here we are, two random people with the things that we dearly love, K-pop and Harry Potter and mid-century modern homes and surfing and hiking and so on, such that we then started to dig into what are the ideas around fandom and what can we learn? And Reiko's undergraduate degree at Columbia was neuroscience. So we talked to a bunch of neuroscientists. What's going on in our brains when we become a fan of something? We interviewed a whole bunch of people who are fans of lots and lots of different things. And we interviewed a bunch of companies that have built remarkable and in many cases surprising 
fans, groups of fans. And when you say, can architects build fans? Well, we found examples in practically every field. And if we had dug in deep, we could have found it in any field. We found a U.S. government agency that has nearly 100 million fans. And I don't know if you can guess or put it into the chat. I'll give you three seconds. One, two, three seconds. It's NASA. NASA has millions and millions of fans. They're a U.S. government agency. They have nearly 100 million followers on Instagram. Crazy. So yes, yes, indeed, Jeff and Katie, architects can absolutely have fans. I love it. When we think about fans, as you define it, as you talk about it in the book, what is a fan? I guess maybe that's a good place to go. Yeah, so a fan is somebody who absolutely loves something. It could be a sports team. It could be an activity. You know, I'm into hiking and I'm into surfing, bird watching, fly fishing, whatever it might be. Could be an author, could be a rock band. It could be any number of different things that you can become a fan. You can become a fan of a technology. You can become a fan of a company. You can become a fan of a professional services firm. Yes, you absolutely can. And it breaks down the barrier of sort of supplier versus client to the point where you're like, man, I love this stuff. And one of my favorite examples of a manifestation of fandom are people who love to share the logo of the thing they love. You know, they put a sticker on the back of their computer. They wear a ball cap with the logo on it. They wear a shirt with the logo. I actually happen to be wearing a shirt with a Nantucket Island little embroidery here. I have a house on Nantucket Island, which also is a nicely designed house. And so I wear a Nantucket Island little tiny logo here. Some people recognize it. Most people don't. I'm a fan of Nantucket Island. I've had a house there for 30 years. And so, yeah, you can become a fan of anything. And what we discovered, which was really interesting, is that from a neuroscience perspective, it's actually rooted in a survival technique. And here's why. The survival technique is going back thousands of generations. You know, when we were on the plains or living in caves, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, you had to be a part of a group in order to survive. You had to be part of a community, a tribe of like-minded people. And the same thing is true of fandom. It's a community of like-minded people, people who are fans of wooden surfboards, people who are fans of NCT 127, a Korean pop band, people who are fans of you and your architecture firm because of what you've been able to do, let's say you're doing residential architecture, to make people's lives better. Yes, they become your fans. And if you can somehow aggregate that group of fans, that becomes a tribe of like-minded people. And that tribe of like-minded people, that group of people is super powerful. And again, it, it's rooted in neuroscience. Yeah, it seems to me what you're talking about, I think, really correlates with the reality that in professional services and architecture firms, for every firm I've ever run across, a huge percentage of their work comes from repeat clients, repeat and or referrals, the, the R's and R's. So true. Yeah. And so... It seems to me that what you're talking about would be just, you know, bring some sort of super energy to that reality that already exists. In many ways, yes. In many ways, cultivating fans is something you absolutely can do. And it then makes the idea of how you can get new clients so much easier. You know, just in my own case, in my own world, I've never once made a sales call. In the 22 years that I've been on my own, writing books, delivering speeches, and I do some coaching, I don't do any consulting anymore, I've never once placed a sales call. All my business comes to me because I cultivate people who then said, like you, like you, Jeff, you guys said, oh, I read this book. It's interesting. I wonder if the author would be interested in coming onto the show. It's like, well, of course I would be interested in coming on the show. Let's do it. 
And then maybe someone listening to the show will buy a book. Maybe someone listening to the show will hire me to speak at an event. And that's how I get my business. You reminded me of the very first story in Fanocracy. We were talking offline just a minute ago. And I had an opportunity to get invited to meet the CEO of a brand new company and happened to be located only about 10 miles from where I live outside of Boston. I live outside of Boston and the company is headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I went said, sure, I'll come and check it out. And the email they sent me was, we built a software company based on the ideas in one of your books. It's like, that'll get my attention. (laughs) So I went and the company was called HubSpot, still around, of course, doing great. And I opened up my notebook computer and on the back of my notebook computer was a Grateful Dead sticker. And the HubSpot CEO, Brian Halligan says, wait a minute. I know we're here to talk about marketing, but I want to talk about the Grateful Dead first. What's with that sticker? And I said, oh my God, I love the Grateful Dead. At that point, I think I'd seen them about 50 times. Brian said, I've seen them over a hundred (laughs) times. And we became fast friends that instant because we shared a fandom. We shared the fandom of the Grateful Dead. And uh, he invited me within a week, I think, invited me to become the very first member of the HubSpot Advisory Board. They had eight employees at that time. They have something like 6,000 employees now, well over a billion dollars in revenue, well over $10 billion market cap in the company. When I joined them, they had less than $250,000 in annual revenue. And he and I worked together as part of his advisory board to implement this idea of fandom. And what they do, they create tons of great content. They have fabulous blogs. They have fabulous YouTube channels. They have something called HubSpot Academy, where they provide free courses on marketing. It's marketing and sales software they provide. Free courses on marketing and sales. And I've built a couple of those courses for them. And they've just done a fabulous job. And today, you see people with HubSpot stickers on their computer. And I have one too, of course. I'll be wandering around somewhere and I'll say, oh, wow, you got a HubSpot sticker. Tell me about that. Oh, I love HubSpot. They'll tell me. I love them. And so I put a sticker on the back of my computer. And this idea of sharing what you're a fan of really bonds people together My daughter, Reiko, as I mentioned, is now an emergency room doctor at Boston Medical Center. And during the pandemic, you know, it was really tough because, oh my gosh, they had to wear masks, they had to wear goggles, they had to wear gloves, and all this head to toe in personal protective equipment. And there was no humanity. That's what fandom is. Fandom is simply humanity. There was no humanity when Reiko was working in the thick of COVID. And she said that she and some of her colleagues in the emergency department would approach a patient who was sick, maybe with COVID, maybe with something else. They were really sick in emergency department, and they'd be scared that this alien would walk in, someone with all this gear on. You can't even see their face except for a little slit of their eyes. You can't see their mouth. What they did was they started to wear sweatshirts over the top of their scrubs with Boston sports teams or pins with Boston sports teams, or even masks with the logo of Boston sports teams. And people's eyes would light up and like all of a sudden they're projecting humanity. And that's another really interesting idea about fandom for you as you're, whoever's watching here thinking about this idea of fandom. When you share the things you love, and I've already shared with you, I'm a fan of the Grateful Dead, I'm a fan of surfing, I'm a fan of hiking, Nantucket Island, mid-century modern homes, among other things, those five things. And when you express that you're a fan of something, you're humanizing yourself. Yet so few people do that. They think, oh, I have to be very serious in business. I'm an architect. I am doing something technical. I am doing something creative. I can't possibly talk about the things I love in my private life. And they're seen by many people as automatrons because they're not expressing their humanity. So real simple idea, tell us, show us who you are. Tell us who you are. Have something in the office that people can relate to. Have photographs, have images, you know, whatever it is. Have a wooden surfboard in your office or whatever it is you happen to love because that shows that you're human. I love that. You know, isn't it ironic 
to me, it's ironic, right? What do architects do? Well, they shape the spaces that humanity exists in, that humans interact with each other and interact with the space and the built environment in. But many times, at least in the way we project ourselves, I think professionalism or, you know, any of those things that you listed off, I think we lose that. We forget about that. Yeah. It's more than just logos too, right? Absolutely. It's more than logos. It's how you project yourself to the world as a human being. And, you know, we did a massive project to refurbish and expand this mid-century modern house that we're in. So my house was built by an MIT architect named Carl Koch in 1958. It's Wonderful. I love it in many, many ways. But it was getting old and tired. And I wanted to redo it, but from the perspective of making it so I can live in the house now, but making sure that every single one of the elements in the original house was maintained as I could, but then adding on to it and being respective, respectable to the 58 vibe, but not being a slave to it. So it is a very specific architectural challenge. And I put it to a number of architects. And what was interesting is in going to their offices, I rarely saw humanity. What I saw was a beautiful building, you know, or if they were in an office building, a beautiful space that you could go into. Okay, fine. But very little around the idea of being human. And the architect that we ended up choosing, basically the first thing out of his mouth before he started to talk about anything was, how do you live? Tell us how you live. You know, what are the things that are important to you? And we ended up having a great relationship together. I'm a massive fan. We ended up taking a lot of the original elements from the 1958 home and preserving them, but in new ways. We maintained all of the different interesting angles, but then we completely upgraded everything. It was a ridiculously expensive project. (laughs) And my wife and I are both thrilled with it. I mean, this is a house we're going to live in for the rest of our lives. So we're both incredibly thrilled with it. And then he, number one, understood what we wanted to accomplish, but then he also was able to put his own flair into it. And we've since become fans. But some of the other people that we interviewed really just seemed like going through the numbers. Okay, we're going to renovate it. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. And they're like telling us what they're going to do before they listen to what we wanted to accomplish. Hmm. And so, you know, the way you interact with potential clients is really important. And so his name is Joey. Love Joe. And every time I have an opportunity to say, we love our house, (laughs) he laughs at us when we do that. Now, one of the hurdles architects always feel like they're facing is educating their own clients. And does this fandom build around that sense that we're kind of onboarding people, we're bringing them into our process? Or is it a completely separate thing where you find an affinity with a client because you share an interest in museums or golfing, or you have this other thing. I'm curious, how is it related to the topic at hand or is it totally different? Well, it's actually a combination of three things, maybe more, but at least three things. So the two that you mentioned. So one thing is, can you build an affinity with somebody because you show that you're human and it almost doesn't matter how you show your humanity, but just showing that you're a human, that people can relate to you because of some quirks that you've got as a person or the things that you love or the ways that you've created a space for yourself if you invite people into your office. So that's one aspect of it. But you mentioned education, and I absolutely agree that that's also a really important part. But you should assume that the education happens before anybody even comes into your office to be interviewed, to do an interview with you, or before anyone even contacts you, that you can educate them through a YouTube channel. You can educate them through your website. You can educate them through photos and images and Instagram feed, however you choose, but you can do some of that education ahead of time, which is exactly what HubSpot did. I mentioned them earlier, educating people on modern marketing and sales techniques. But the third thing you didn't mention, Katie, which is interesting to me, and is where so many people fail, is they start when they finally either get you on the phone or they finally end up with an opportunity to have you come into their office 
or you come into their home or their office, depending on whether it's a building for a business or a home, they begin that education process again. You should assume that much of that education process has already happened just by virtue of you being there. Whether it's a referral, hey, these guys are great. Here's the reasons they're great. You should contact them. Or they find you through the content you're creating, a YouTube channel, whatever it might be, or some other way that they find you. You should assume that they've already done their basic homework and you should flip the script and you should be interviewing that potential client. Why are you here? What do you want to accomplish? In the case of the architect that we worked with, how do you live? And asking us questions about how we live made our dream home happen because we didn't focus on just the cookie cutter that some of the other architects wanted to push us into. That's interesting. Now, I know that somewhere out there, there's somebody, maybe not live, maybe not in our audience, but they're saying, yes, but professionalism. We exude professionalism. We are professionals by definition, by license. It is professional services. So this is who we are. And so we take that straight and narrow. What do you say to that? They're not mutually exclusive. You can be professional, but you need to be human. And, you know, I looked at a lot of architecture firms' websites and, you know, yeah, you've got those black chunky glasses and many of them, for whatever reason, all the principal's photos are in black and white. Cool, I get it. But you look like everybody else, you know? Oh, looking very serious with my chunky glasses, black and white photo, good for you. You know, there's just so many other ways that you can express your personality. Let me give you an example. So, I speak at Tony Robbins business mastery events around the world, have done so for 10 years now. And a couple of years ago, I had a chance to meet a dentist. His name is Dr. John Marashi. And Dr. Marashi said, David, I'm a professional service. I'm a dentist. I practice in the Los Angeles area. There's literally 10,000 or more dentists in Southern California. How the hell do I build fans? How do I stand out? So I had a discussion much like this with Dr. Marashi after I got off the stage. And I said, well, what do you love to do, Dr. Marashi? And he said, I love to skateboard. And I said, cool, let's combine dentistry and skateboarding with the ways you project yourself to your audience. So what did Dr. Marashi do? On his website, he has pictures of him skateboarding. In his offices, in his office, he has skateboards on the wall. He will sometimes skateboard from one examination room to another. He never performs any dental procedures on a skateboard. I want to make sure that that's clear. On his Instagram feed, he'll also have um, images of him skateboarding, both video and photographs. And Dr. Marashi contacted me about a year later and goes, David, that was transformational. My number of new patients grew by 30% since you and I spoke that I can absolutely tie back to this idea of humanizing myself through skateboarding. And the amount of new revenue grew by 23% because of this one simple idea, humanizing himself as a lover of skateboarding. And his new clients aren't skateboarders. It's not like you're attracting other skateboarders. You're attracting people who are looking for a dentist. Okay, boring dentist, boring dentist, boring dentist, boring dentist. This dude's a skateboarder? That's crazy. I should check him out. And then when people do a referral, they don't say, oh yeah, my dentist is really great. They say, my dentist is really great. And he's also a super interesting dude. He has skateboards in his office. It's something that is both professional. Yes, he's a dentist. He's got all the degrees on the wall. He wears a white coat when he needs to look important. He's got all the gear, you know, the microscopes and the thingamajigs to take pictures of your teeth. But he's also a skateboarder. And by the way, you should check him out on Instagram, Dr. John, J-O-N, Marashi, M-A-R-A-S-H-I. It was an in-person speech where he was listening to me talk, just like I'm talking now, decided to run with it. And his business is growing like crazy from this one idea. 
of humanizing himself. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. I think it's so fun to talk with you about these things. There's an energy that you bring and it happens throughout your book, but it's that little bit of nervousness that you bring to someone and then you lean into it and you let them be just a bit vulnerable and affirm that with how you're trying to invite that. Thank you for saying it that way, Katie, because Dr. Marashi, and this happens all the time. Dr. Marashi is like skateboarding and dentistry. Are you, are you on drugs? What are you talking about? And when he started it kind of, slowly. And now he's like totally dug in. He's like every third or fourth post on Instagram is something about skateboarding. Well, you know, to your point, so I've hired a few professionals this year, many or all of which I'd never really wanted to hire. But, you know, I had to go through this process of selecting. I've never hired this type of professional before. I've never hired that type of professional before, but I need this information. I need the help. How do I find the right one and you know 10,000 dentists in southern california or 100,000 architects in the united states alone or you know x number of attorneys in my city the the list is always long and so when i set out to hire these different professionals i start asking people i start looking for some way to identify with or align with these people, like you said, to set apart, right? All these black and white photographs of all these old white guys with black glasses, <laughs> they all start to look the same, right? It's hysterical because it is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, ultimately we're looking for somebody to identify with, right? I think we are. I think we're, and that's especially true today because as I mentioned earlier at the top of our conversation, because the online world has become so polarizing because, mm. you know, you just have to take a look at the news and you're like, oh my God, you know, the whole world is going to hell. But it's not, it's not going to hell because we all have our human relationships. An architect, any professional service person or firm is about a human relationship. And the more you can bring that human relationship to the forefront, in a potential client phase, the more likely you are to win the business, the more likely you are to have a happy client, the more likely you are that that client will refer more people to you. It's just, that's just the way it is. And if you end up with a stick in the mud as a potential client, or oh, why do you have skateboards on the wall? I want a dentist who's a professional. Well, that's not the right patient for you. <laughs> you know, if someone says to me, I don't want someone who's a Grateful Dead fan speaking at my event. Cool. I don't want to speak at your event either. <laughs> so, you know, just show your humanity and have that feeling that, yes, this is important because it is. It is important because people do business with people. They don't do business with automatrons. That's a really important point. 
no matter what contract you're signing, it always has two people's names. It never has the name of a business and a name of another business or, you know, something like that. It's this person and this person. So this is important. Before we went live, you know, we were talking about somebody that you met that's in the building world that I think many in this audience are probably familiar with as another great example of content that's out there in, in a way that we can connect with this particular builder. Again, whether we hire Matt to build our home or not, you know, he may not be the right builder. We may not be in his area, maybe different scales, maybe different construction types, whatever, but he's putting it out there. And I know that he has fans. Tell us a little bit more about Matt. Matt Reisinger is his name. And I met Matt about a decade ago at a conference. I spoke at the Build Conference. And he was there. He had just started his building practice in Austin, Texas. And he was going to specialize in high-end custom homes. At that point, it was over $2 million. I don't know what a high-end custom home in Austin is these days, probably 10 times that. But he started his business and he was new to the Austin area. And he was really paying attention when I was talking to these ideas about creating great content that can educate people and also personalize yourself. And so he ran with it and he created a YouTube channel. And you can go check out his YouTube channel. It's been going for a decade now. And he initially did, I think, one YouTube video a week. Now he's up to two a week. And he would just film on the job. He still does, just film on the job. He doesn't use any really complicated techniques. It's pretty simple stuff. In the early days, he was just using a flip video camera, then a smartphone when the technology became a little bit better. Now he has a better camera because he's doing so well with it. But his videos are great and they started to catch on. And they caught on so much that very quickly, his brand new home building business grew from zero to $20 million. And he reached out to me, I think it was about six years after he started doing the YouTube videos. So about four years ago, something like that. I forget the dates. And he reached out through Twitter. And I had forgotten that I actually met him. He goes, David, your ideas about creating content on YouTube allowed me to grow my business to $20 million. Thank you. It was just a tweet. I'm paraphrasing the tweet. I replied on public Twitter and said, wow, that's great. Thanks for letting me know. And then privately, hey, let's get on a phone. I'd be interested in learning about this. So yeah, it turns out that his YouTube channel was what humanized him for people in Austin who were planning on building a home. But it got better because since then, in the last four years or five years, Matt has then totally embraced how on YouTube, you can do sponsorships and you can do advertising. So sponsorships being things like building products, building supply companies, tool manufacturers, you know, windows and door manufacturers and so on, will sponsor his channel. And then YouTube sells advertising against his channel and then he gets to share the revenue. He told me the latest data I got was about six months ago. He's making $2 million a year from sponsorship and another $2 million a year from ad revenue. That's $4 million total from his YouTube channel, which he created to be his marketing, which doesn't cost anything. <laughs> and he also just created something called the Build Channel, which is a website that has those videos as well, bypassing the YouTube channel. But Matt said to me last time I spoke with him roughly six months ago, he goes, David, this has been great because my building company, I helped to support 20 or 30 families because I have all of these people who are working for me to build these homes. But my YouTube channel is how I'm building wealth for my own family and to put my kids through school and to create a legacy and to be able to donate money to worthy causes. Thank you, David, for this idea. And so I love that. I love, love, love when the student outguns the teacher because I have a little simple YouTube channel, but I'm nowhere near that kind of success. And it's great. I love it. And again, professional services guy out there making it happen, building fans, building his business and feeding a bunch of families as a result and creating a legacy. And by sharing more, he's built trust. 
He absolutely. We get so scared to open the doors and people won't like what they see, but people are interested in architecture. They're interested in what we do. And so just opening those doors just opens the floodgates potentially. I think that's right. And then imagine you live in Austin, you've got a choice between five builders. You want this cookie cutter, that cookie cutter, you know, this guy, this guy, this guy, or this dude who has a million followers on his YouTube channel. And you can go in and you can watch, you know, hours of these videos. And then you come away thinking, I know who I'm going to hire for my $10 million build or whatever number the high-end Austin homes are these days. I know who I'm going to hire. Yeah. And I think to your point, Katie, and what you're talking about it as well, David, I mean, I know there are people that are afraid to share, maybe to share the personal things, but also, hey, we've got this secret sauce, but there's a surfboard behind you. There is. Where, as we were talking before, and this, this is in the book, pick up Fanocracy, read the book, listen to it. That's the way I consume. But there's a surfboard company that not only gives away the secret sauce, but teaches you how to cook with the secret sauce, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's called Grain Surfboards. And I actually built this surfboard at their York, Maine headquarters. And I love it so much, I don't even surf it. It just sits here as a beautiful object in my home studio. But yeah, they pioneered a unique board building technique. And I think many people listening in, architects, would love to take a look at grain surfboards because what they did was they took the owner an understanding of boat building techniques. He used to build boats and he was an avid surfer. And he put those two things together to create a unique way to make a wooden surfboard. And there's been wooden surfboards have been around for over a hundred years. The original Hawaiian surfboards were these really long planks of wood. But what made it a game changer with grain surfboards is it's hollow. It's got ribs like a boat, and then it's got the wood over the top of it. And then it's fiberglassed like a regular foam surfboard. And you're right. They could have said, that's our proprietary technology. You know, we're not going to share it with anybody. You want to buy a surfboard? Fine. We're not going to share you how we build them. Grain Surfboards is like, hey, you want to build it yourself? Cool. We'll send you the plans. We'll send you the plans and the wood. Or you can come to our factory, which is what I did, four days course and learn how to build that surfboard. So they're giving away their, as you called it, their secret sauce, their proprietary techniques because it builds fans, because now they're doing great. You know, they're the number one wooden surfboard builder in the world. And people love them. I love them. I actually built two boards with them. Another board, I actually surf a lot. It's at the Nantucket house where I do a lot of my surfing. Nice. Well, listen, David, I know that you need to run and I really appreciate you joining us here today and tell Reiko also thank you for the book. We look forward to her book on K-pop and that's exciting. Again, thank you for the book and thanks for sharing with us today and helping us understand how architects can actually build fandoms or have fans. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Jeff and Katie, for having me on. And I'll leave you with one more thought. And that is, this stuff's fun. Most people think marketing is dreadful. And traditional marketing is dreadful. This is not. This is fun. This is you're engaging with people on a human level. And it's exciting. And it's fun. And people like Matt Reisinger and people like Green Surfboards and people like Dr. John Marashi and the folks at HubSpot, they love putting this stuff out and it has the added benefit of making them a much bigger organization. So go out there and have some fun. Great. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, David. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. And for you, those of you in the audience, we're going to stick around for just a minute and we'll kind of wrap it up with our own thoughts and our own responses. And we Again, this was a conversation I've really been looking forward to. Yeah. So what's your biggest takeaway, you think, from this conversation? Gosh, this resonated at a deeper level. I grew up in a small town and my dad was a florist and the owner of the business. And I kind of grew up with him having already developed all those relationships. And hearing David talk about it, I don't think this came up when I was reading the book, but hearing him talk about the spirit of that connection It happened inherently when I was growing up. I just saw it. And there's a disconnect from having moved to a different state. And now I'm trying to start my own business. And now it's a totally digital world instead of the 90s where my dad had lived there for generations of family members and 
friends who employed him as a florist. And florist is one of those businesses that you have to have a fan base. It's not a necessity necessarily. It's got to be a want. And there were other options in a town of 5,000. So how do you make sure they choose the Posey Palace? That sort of thing. And he was never really a blazing success, but he had those deep relationships and he sustained his business Mm -hmm. the whole time. And so now as I'm building my business, I'm like looking at this and wow, the whole internet is our playground for exploring these marketing strategies Mm -hmm. and for expressing this fandom. And it starts to bring a new language and a new light to what it means to have those personal relationships. It's not like you can stop by and have coffee at my studio. although. It's my house. So there is coffee all the time, but that's not where I'm at right now with my business. And so it's just Mm -hmm. interesting. That's where my head is at with this is that it's kind of resonating in that humanity that's brought to it. And it's just encouraging and really exciting. He's just really exciting to talk to. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely exciting. The energy is definitely a big thing. You know, you said something a minute ago about you know, the florist not being a necessity, being a luxury. And as you said that, I was thinking about that. You you rattle off. I can remember a few of the examples from the book, but I think about other examples of fan bases. I mean, I, you can't see it, but I have bobbleheads up here from the Atlanta Braves because I grew up with Atlanta Braves baseball and, you know, some other things. And as I think about all these examples, Harley Davidson has mentioned, the surfboard certainly behind him, the Grateful Dead. None of those things are, are necessities. They're all on some level a luxury. You don't have to have a sports team that you love, you know, baseball or hockey or whatever. I mean, you don't have to have any of these things. But yet it's these things that people gather around. You know, I've been in airports before or... A big example here in Indianapolis is that, I don't know if we're hosting it this year, but many years we host the Big Ten football championship and sometimes either the men's or women's Big Ten basketball championship. And so what happens in Indianapolis is I could go downtown and I could sit somewhere in a restaurant or coffee shop or bar or whatever and just look out the window and you have all of these people you know, they're in red for Nebraska, they're in purple for Northwestern, or they're in, you know, whatever their team colors are, and they see each other on the street, or they walk into a bar or something like that, and there's other ones, and they have their fight song or whatever their thing is, and they're connecting simply around that idea, you know, that idea of that team. And, but I think it's so interesting the way humans will connect around something that's outside of themselves and attached to something that's outside of themselves and attach importance to that. That reminds me, I think it's easy to point to bands. It's easy to point to the Grateful Dead or U2. That was my band. It's always been my band. I'm going to go see them here in a little less than a month now. But my daughter and I, this summer, we went to a concert. We were going to a concert put on by a Queen tribute band. And I know the music of Queen. Many of us know the music of Queen. But I had never seen the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. And so we were going to this on Saturday. And so Saturday morning, we sat around, you know, threw caution to the wind, whatever to-do list we had, and we watched Bohemian Rhapsody. And so I'm watching this movie And it didn't strike me until the very end of the movie. And if you don't know the story of Queen, if you don't know all the drama behind the band and the breakup and the get back together and Freddie Mercury and everything else, I'll save you the the spoiler alerts. But their final concert, it was an AIDS concert that was simulcast around and they were playing at Wembley Stadium. And leading up to this concert, they were or I guess it was maybe when they were coming up with the We Will Rock You song. And it started out in the studio, you know, there's kind of the stomping and this clapping. And Freddie Mercury, and, you know, who knows how much license was taken with this movie, but Freddie Mercury was so insistent with the music connecting with the audience 
And it dawned on me at that point, the whole movie, everything about Queen music. And I think one of the reasons that so many of us know so many of those Queen songs, whether it was of our generation or we came after or maybe predated it, we know and identify with those songs so well that every single one of their songs was designed basically as an interaction with their audience. And it didn't dawn on me until they went through that scene and then they, the scene where they're writing the song, basically they're working out that song, and then they performed it at Wembley for the Live Aid concert. That's what it was. And it just struck me that everything about their music, egos and everything else aside, but everything about their music was about connecting on some visceral physical level, you know, the clapping, the stomping, the sound and repeat, all of that with their audience. I thought, how amazing is that? And the fact that that's now, I forget how long it's been now since Freddie Mercury passed, but it's been a long time, obviously, since Live Aid. But that music will continue on. I mean, my daughter's 18. She has no memory of Queen that predates her. (laughs) That music will live on through generations. And I think it really is because of that insistence of connecting with the human beings on the other side of the microphone, if you will, or on the other side of the stage. And so how can we do that in our arguably smaller way than one of the most popular rock bands of all time? But I think that's really what it comes down to is how are we connecting with other human beings? Erica says 30 years almost. It might be 30 years. <laughs> 32 years, says Google. <laughs> there you go. So it's interesting because what does that then mean for architects? And it could be the buildings themselves had fans, specifically public buildings that we do. have fans and of. Do, yeah. And it'd just be interesting to take more ownership over that, mm-hmm. that if there is a building you've designed or there's a building you love, to give that its own fandom. Historic preservation sometimes tries to do this in February Mm -hmm. with love letters to historic buildings. Mm -hmm. But I'm teaching a studio right now and my students had to draw a party of their buildings. And it was like the spirit of their building. And that's, gosh, I haven't done this in school. Why haven't I really done this in school? And it's like, well, there's certain buildings that lend themselves to that design idea that is something that can start to be that icon that building a fandom around it and i don't know i love how toby does it with how he's done it for his residential clients i think he's captured a great spirit that is serving his clients well and really aligns with how he views design there's just a lot that people could choose for that so number one fan of ravi Probably Roby House, Roby? maybe in Chicago. Oh, yeah. yes. Brickwood, right? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Sorry. Yeah, be my I guess. have been there. It is beautiful. Yeah. It is. Shorter. Definitely. But. Definitely. Yeah. The, <laughs> shorter. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's so, so compressing for, and I'm short. So <laughs> that's saying something. Maybe that's one of my great ironies. It's, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright was a huge influence on me because when we moved to Chicago, my mom being a lifelong learner and explorer, we went out and you know, she was for a while when we were younger, she was a stay at home mom. And, you know, she's wrangling the three of us. But I've been through all the Frank Lloyd Wright things that you can get into. And, and that was a huge influence on me, obviously. But as someone that you say, Roby House is compressing all of his houses, you know, go to Oak Park, go to the, the Holman studio. As someone that's, you know, I haven't always been 6'3, but I've been tall my life. But, someone that's 6'3 and walking into his house is like, this is uncomfortable. Cool. How do I do this? <laughs> Not really the same, but you yeah. You can change every light bulb. <laughs> I absolutely can without even a stool. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't seem like with this audience, but sometimes there's some resentment towards what Wright did and the fandom around Frank Lloyd Wright and that he's like, oh, he was the only architect of his every coffee book that's out there. I wonder if it turns some people off of the marketing side of it. And it's successful though. And and it is really inspiring and beautiful design. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'll bring this up and I know we're at the top of the hour, so we'll wrap this up. But I think this relates to that. And I've shared this on Java with Jeff, our morning mindset calls before, but 
the artist way. I've been going through that Julia Cameron. Mm-hmm. And very early in the book, Julia Cameron talks about the difference between artists that make it and don't make it. I don't know what word she actually uses, but why did this artist become a famous artist and this one is an unknown or something like that? And she said, oftentimes it comes down to audacity. And I think that many of us, and maybe this is just me speaking about myself, but many of us, I think, look at audacity. Oh, that's not a good characteristic. But if you look up the definition of audacity, there's not a negative connotation there. We may have been taught to read that into it. But what if you were audacious enough to think that someone actually cared about you as a human being? What if you were audacious enough to say, oh, there might be people out there that are looking for an architect or a dentist and that would identify with me as a human being when they found out that I rode skateboards or that I had tattoos or that I whatever. And I took a lot away from that passage in Jane Cameron's book, because I think that's absolutely true, right? If you're going to connect with other human beings, you have to put something out there, right? And that's not easy for many of us, but you have to put something out there that's real, that's authentic, that's human for someone else to respond to. I think Chad summarizes it really well, that the buildings have character, but the architect has their voice allowing an audience to engage. And that's what we're talking about, like building that engagement, building that conversation and leaning into it. And it's an exciting thing. Mm -hmm. I love that he also did a throwback to they ask, you answer. Yeah, That was a fun tie-in because he's right. We should have things out there that are educating our clients before they come to Mm -hmm. us. And we can initiate that outreach to them by sharing and being open enough to just share part of who we are with them and and make it authentic. Absolutely. Yeah. If you didn't catch or you don't know that reference to they ask you answer a year ago, I don't know how long ago. No, this was like June. Yeah. Was it June of this year? So earlier this year. Wow. I think so. Yeah. Earlier this year, we had Marcus Sheridan on as a guest on Context and Clarity Live. So there's a connection. David Mirren, Scott, HubSpot, and Marcus Sheridan. They're sort of related in a way. Go watch that conversation with Marcus Sheridan, the author of They Ask You Answer. Also a really good conversation and another way that you can educate your clients in a very human, not off-putting, you know, however you want to describe it in a really great way. So check that one out. I can tell Katie's looking it up. She's- I am. I'm fact-checking myself because I got the date wrong. I thought I was part of that conversation because I watched it. But it's <laughs> it's in February, February 24th. That's more recent than I thought. Okay. That was a really good conversation. Yeah. So check that out. Yeah, there's a connection between today with David Muirman Scott and Marcus Sheridan. So check that out. Also definitely worth the watch. Mm-hmm. All right. Katie, thank you, as always. Yeah. For all of you out there in our audience, thank you for uh, joining us, whether you're live or in some time-shifted manner on some platform somewhere. We appreciate you. Hope you got a lot out of it. And davidmeermanscott.com is his URL. Fanocracy, F-A-N-O-C-R-A-C-Y. I don't know if I spelled that right. That's the book. David wrote it with his daughter, Reiko, which he referenced several times in the conversation today. Great examples all across the board and great insights from emergency room doctor as well. If you think, oh, well, here's this marketing guy. What's a professional think? Well, you've got them both, father and daughter there. But check it out and we will be back again next week with another episode of Context and Clarity Live. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use in your practice or even in your daily life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, I invite you to go over to the Entree Architect Network. It's a place where entrepreneur architects just like you gather to have conversations on these topics and support each other in their practices and in their lives. 
You can find the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Your likes, your ratings, and your shares help us and help other entrepreneur architects like you to gather together. And you can help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire, all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA Continuing Education Services Provider. Upon completion, we handle everything, from reporting your hours directly to the AIA, to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media.